we continue our studies in the book of Judges, we'll be in Judges chapter 8 this evening. The historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then the the men of Ephraim said to him, that is Gideon, What is this thing you have done to us? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian, and they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Then Gideon and the three hundred men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. He said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary. And I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? Gideon said, All right. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him, just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Kaukar, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east. For the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Noba and Jokbeha, and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a youth from Succoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him the, the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. He came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmona, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are weary? He took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. He tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. He said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise up yourself and fall on us, for as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, 
for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, We will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads any more, and the land was undisturbed for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrats. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. Now we have in this chapter that we have just read the account of the mopping up operation that followed on the heels of Gideon's victory in chapter 7 that we saw a couple of weeks ago. And we have here also a postscript concerning the subsequent life of Gideon. Now, here in this chapter we see the, the bickering of Ephraim with Gideon. We see the unwillingness of the towns of Succoth and Penuel to join in helping in the mop-up operation. And we see how Gideon finally defeats the, the Midianites and how he handles the internecine conflict with his fellow Israelites. And we also see this sad ending to the life of this faithful man. And so as we consider this chapter tonight, we'll do so under three main headings. First, we'll see that a soft answer turns away wrath. Secondly, stripes are for the backs of fools. And thirdly, the snare of the ephod. So we have a soft answer turns away wrath. Stripes are for the backs of fools. And the snare of the ephod. So first of all, a soft answer turns away wrath. The men of Ephraim were certainly angry when they came to Gideon in chapter 8, verse 1, and they said, What is this thing you have done? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. They're angry about this. They were, they were left out of the fighting. They wanted to get in and get a share of the fighting. Now, if you think back to Genesis, Jacob had blessed Ephraim. Ephraim was the younger son of Joseph, and Manasseh was the older one. And Jacob had given, as it were, the blessing of the firstborn to, to Ephraim over and above Manasseh. And Ephraim seemed jealous to retain that honor. Gideon, after all, is from, from the tribe of Manasseh. And 
Ephraim seemed to desire to retain their honor. They wanted to know, in this case, why they had not been given a chance to share in the glory of the victory of Gideon and his 300 men in that night attack on the Midianites that we saw back in chapter, uh, chapter 7. This kind of ambition and vanity on the part of the tribe of Ephraim seemed to be par for the course for, for them. This same kind of thing happens when we get to chapter 12 after Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites. The men of Ephraim come to, to Jephthah, as recorded in Judges 12, verse 1, and they say, why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. And things took an ugly turn then as Jephthah and his men fought against the Ephraimites and it resulted in 42,000 Ephraimite casualties. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at that event more in a month or two. But here in chapter 8, by God's grace, Gideon's response worked wonders at turning down the temperature, the conversation, de-escalating and diffusing the situation. And he calls their attention to a very noteworthy fact, that they actually did get in on the fight against the Midianites. Though they did not go to the camp of Midian for the night attack, they had done great things in the fighting that followed. He says to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Abiezer was, was Gideon's, uh, Gideon's father. or I'm sorry, not, not his father, but this was his, his tribe, his clan, and uh, God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And so what he's pointing to is to the closing verses there of chapter 7, where uh, we find that the men of Ephraim were the ones indeed who captured Oreb and Zeb, the two leaders of Midian, and had killed them. And this turned their anger away from Gideon. When Gideon had said this, you know, what have, what have I done in comparison with you? You guys, uh, you guys got the top brass here. You killed Oreb and Zeb. And this is a practical illustration of the truth of Proverbs 15.1, that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The Ephraimites, in their pride and in their lust for glory, are angry at Gideon for not including them in the night attack. But truth be told, even if Gideon had invited them to, to join his armies, most of them would not have been able to go down for the attack anyways, right? The Lord had whittled Gideon's army down from 32,000 down to 300 because he wanted it to be known that it was the Lord who had given them victory and not their military might. And so, really, there would have been no point in asking the men of Ephraim to go down to the battle. Most of them would have been sent away anyways, Proverbs 13.10 tells us that through insolence comes nothing but strife. And insolence was clearly on display here from the Ephraimites. That's what they brought to the table in this encounter with Gideon. But Gideon answered them gently, pointed out their contribution to the fight with Midian, and he spoke of how important that contribution was. And we would all do well to take a lesson from Gideon here. The reason is, is because it's often very easy to think of something snarky, something harsh, or something just generally unhelpful or angry to say when someone comes at us with an unjust accusation or with just angry and unhelpful words in general. 
But it's no good to respond with something snarky and harsh. It was a saying passed down to me from my father that you should never wrestle with a pig because you both get dirty and the pig likes it. And so when, when someone comes at you and attacks you, they might be looking for a tussle. And you're better off not to fight. Soft answer turns away wrath. It's for everyone's good, and it's for the glory of God to refuse to provoke and to refuse to stir up anger, but rather, as much as it lies with you, to live peaceably with all men, as Paul tells us in Romans 12, 18. It's for our good and for the glory of God to turn away anger and wrath with a soft answer. And that brings us to our second point, which is thorns are for the backs of fools. As Gideon and his men were in hot pursuit of the fleeing remnant of the Midianites, they crossed over the Jordan from the west side to the east side and were in need of some nourishment to provide strength so as to continue on in the pursuit. They come to the town of Succoth and Gideon asks for bread and none is given. None is given because the men of Succoth are only willing to help after the victory had been accomplished. They asked if the, if the palms of Zeba and uh, Zalmunna were already in their hands that they should, should give them bread. In other words, we only, we only give bread to the winners around here, not to those who are still in the fight. No victory as of yet means no bread will be given. And the story is the same in the next town, in the town of Penuel, when Gideon asks them for help. And now we look at the situation and we might wonder, why? Why would these Israelite towns refuse to give help and assistance to Gideon and his men as they were on their way to finish off this invading Midianite horde? Had not they themselves suffered from the oppression of these foreign invaders? You'd think they might be willing to help them. Yeah, get rid of them. We'll, we'll give you what we got. Please, finish them off. But they didn't do it. All he asked for was bread. Right? He didn't even say, join up with us. Get your, get your arms and come and let's go. All he asked for was bread. Why not help? Well, many have suspected, and I think with, with good reason, that these towns did not want to commit themselves before they knew the final outcome of the fight. And they wanted to just ride it out and sit on the fence just in case Gideon did not win the victory. They were looking out for themselves, in other words. They were trying to cover their backs. If they supported Gideon, and then Gideon didn't win, they might be first in the sights of the victorious Midianites in, in that case. They worried that they might have been in the vengeful sights of Zeba and Zalmunna and therefore feared the reprisal of these kings and the havoc that they might have brought on their towns should Gideon uh, not have won in this follow-up fight. But Gideon is not up for suffering fools lightly here. And so he announces to both Succoth and to Penuel that when he has defeated the Midianites, he will return and he will deal them a blow. And so he announces that he will thrash the bodies of the men of Succoth with briars and thorns. He announces to Penuel that he will tear down their tower. And as he speaks these strong words to these towns, notice his firm faith in the Lord here. The Lord had promised victory to Gideon, and Gideon fully believes that the victory will be his. He doesn't announce this future punishment in terms of if, but in terms of when. So he doesn't say, if the Lord gives Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands. Rather, he says, when the Lord gives Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand. It's not if I return safely, it's when I return safely. He knows he's coming back. And thus it was that Gideon 
makes this second attack on the Midianites in verses 10 through 12, catches them unawares, routs the whole army, and captures Zeba and Zalmunna. And then he returns and makes good on his word. He comes back, finds this young man from from Succoth, and gets this young man to write down who's responsible for this municipal decision not to donate and support these hungry troops of his. He gets the names of the, the elders of the city, and he disciplines them with thorns and briars, just as he said he would. Then he returns to Penuel, tears down the tower, and kills at least some of the men of the city. Now, this punishment might seem harsh, but what I think we see here is that sometimes, in some circumstances, there is no neutral ground. To be fair, there are some conflicts in which you can be neutral. You can just stand back and say, I'm not, I'm not getting in that. But not all conflicts will allow you to be neutral. There are some in which you cannot be neutral. The men of Sukkoth and the men of Penuel probably just wanted to sit tight and try to stay neutral while the battle was on, and then they can support the winner, whoever, uh, whoever that happens to be. They might have thought that if they refused bread to, to Gideon and his men, that they weren't uh, necessarily helping, and that as long as they didn't take up arms against him, they weren't hurting him. And then when the battle is over, they can just pick the winning side and all will be well. But Gideon would have none of this. By refusing him bread, they were actually taking the side of the enemy in Gideon's estimation. And when he returned, he treated them like enemies. And when it comes to serving the Lord, it works the same way. We're either with the Lord or we're against the Lord. There is no, there is no third way. There's no, I'm neither for you nor against you when it comes to being with the Lord or against him. Now, in our reading earlier this evening from Mark chapter 9, we read about how the disciple John saw someone who was casting out demons in Jesus' name when this man was not one of the 12 disciples. And he comes and tells Jesus about it and said, hey, we, we tried to stop this guy. And Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. This man was not against Christ. He was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and he was not against the disciples. He was doing the same work that the disciples were supposed to be doing. He was opposing the kingdom of Satan. And those truths being considered, then that means that this man ought to have been considered as being on their side. He's not against Jesus. He's doing the same thing that the, that the disciples are doing. The flip side, however, must also be considered. And those are the words of our Lord in Matthew 12, 30, where Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Combine the two passages together, Mark 9 and Matthew 12, we find that we are either with Christ or else we are against him. If we're not with Christ, we'll be against him. If we're not against Christ, we will be with him, before him. And this particular man there in Mark chapter 9, not being against them, was for them. As one commentator put it, If a man be not an open enemy to Christ, he ought to be presumed to be his friend, at least so far as not to be discouraged in doing a good work. Right? If this man is not an open enemy to Christ and he's doing a good work, don't stop him. He should be encouraged to continue on in that good work. And then Jesus says in Mark 9.41, Whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink 
because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And this is a reminder that Christ rewards those who loves uh, those who love his people because of their name as followers of Christ. Christ identifies solidly with his people, loving the people of Christ, receiving them, welcoming them, helping them, taking care of them because they are the people of Christ is very important to Jesus. Christ cares about his people and he takes care of those who take care of his people. Now obviously we don't take Mark 9.41 in isolation from everything else that God has revealed to us as Scripture, as if we were to boil the whole Christian life and practice down to this one thing. Did you give a Christian something to drink because he is a Christian? Check yes or no. If you check yes, you're in good shape. Nothing else matters. Check no, you're in bad shape. Obviously, we can't do that. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. You can't simply give a Christian a cup of cold water and then live like the devil because, uh, because you think that on, this, on the basis of Mark 9.41, God will reward you on Judgment Day. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what he is saying is that inasmuch as you support and take care of Christians because they belong to Christ and if by your hospitality and love you are demonstrating true solidarity with them, showing that their faith is your faith and that you are both clinging to Christ alone, then such a person who is doing that ought to know that God will give them their reward. They will not lose their reward. The fact that these men here in Judges 8, these men from Succoth and Penuel, refused to help Gideon was a good barometer of where their hearts were at in this conflict. And it wasn't with Gideon. Gideon was on the godly side. And since their heart was not with Gideon on the godly side, they were as such treated as enemies. And we need to remember then that in the great spiritual battle that rages every day in the world, there are only two sides. And our actions and our sympathies will reveal what side we're on. And this brings us then to our third point, which is the snare of the ephod. Once the dust of the battle had settled... The men of Israel then invite Gideon to become king over them. And Gideon replies in verse 23 by saying, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, but the Lord shall rule over you. Now what should we make of Gideon's words here? Commentators vary in how they take this response, actually. Some of them view this as a clear rejection of the monarchy, as if Gideon is is saying, nope, I'm not not going to be a monarch. The Lord alone is your king. It's not going to be me. Some would view this as almost a qualified acceptance of the monarchy, with him accepting, in a sense, the call to rule, while ultimately recognizing that it's the Lord who is the one who must truly rule the people. As Dale Ralph Davis pointed out, there are a few hints in the text that seem to indicate some things going on here that actually correspond with royal ambition. He becomes a religious innovator, as we see here at the end of the chapter. He has a large harem, many wives, and at least one concubine that we know of. And his son, as we find, um, has the name, uh, we see this in verse, verse 31, has the name Abimelech, which means my father is king. So he gives his son the name that means my father is king. 
And Abimelech, in chapter 9, gives a hint of some dynastic implications. Chapter 9, verse 2, when he asks the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? And he's, he's uh, speaking to the men of Shechem, and he's kind of laying out that, hey, it's going, to be, it's going to be someone of Gideon's descendants who is ruling over you. Which is better, having 70 of my brothers or just having me? And, uh, and so it's a little bit of a mixed bag because you have all of that which seems to, to hint at perhaps some royal aspirations or perhaps royal practice in some way. But um, verse 29 seems to perhaps point the other way when it says, Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. It's, uh, it's almost as if he kind of retires and goes away into, into private life. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Gideon either accepted the call to rule in a qualified way or else he rejected it outright. But again, even if he did reject it, he at least gives some hints that he was thinking about it or perhaps in some ways acting like it. And it's his role in religious innovation which should cause us the most concern. He asks the people there to give them, uh, to give to him an earring from their spoil. And so they give him the, the earrings and some of the other ornaments, and then the kicker comes in verse 27. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Now, we need to think here. What was an ephod in the Old Testament sense of things? The ephod, as prescribed in the law, was part of the, the, the garb of the high priest. It was a tunic that was without sleeves and made out of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. You find this in Exodus chapters 28, Exodus 39. And attached to this tunic was, was a breastplate or a breast piece containing 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. And in the breastplate there was also a, a pouch or a pocket in which the, the Urim and the Thummim were kept. And so we read in Exodus 28, verse 30, You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. And then in practice, we find that in 1 Samuel 23, verses 9 through 12, and 1 Samuel 30, verses 7 through 8, we find that the ephod was used practically uh, by, uh, in, in making inquiry of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 23, 1 Samuel 30, we find David calling to the, the priest Abiathar to bring him the, the ephod for the purpose of inquiring for the Lord. He's needing direction, and so he says to the priest, bring the ephod, and he makes inquiry of the Lord. This is how the, the ephod was used. And the implications here in Judges 8, then, seems to be that Gideon made this ephod and apparently attempted to use it to inquire of the Lord. And so it seems that Gideon is essentially, in some way perhaps, trying to function as a priest, at least to some degree. Now Gideon's not supposed to be doing that. It's true the Lord had commanded him, as we saw several weeks ago back in chapter 6, to tear down the altar of Baal and to offer a sacrifice. That implies perhaps some, some priestly connotations, but that is, uh, that's kind of a one-off event. This is not him being instituted as a priest. 
And the Lord had, it is true, given him special revelation, right? The Lord had, had appeared to him and had called him to the task of, of leading Israel against the Midianites. The Lord had uh, revealed to him that he should whittle down his force. The Lord had revealed to him the, the sign of the fleece and so on, that he would be victorious. But these seemed to have been extraordinary occasions in which the Lord had been at work. And now it almost seems that Gideon is wanting to, to keep that going. He's wanting to keep on inquiring of the Lord and uh, receiving revelation from God. And this was something that actually only the priests were supposed to do. Matthew Poole summed up the situation like this. Though Gideon was a good man and did this with an honest mind and a desire to set up religion in his own city and family, yet here seems to be many sins in it. One, superstition and will worship, worshiping God by a device of his own, which was frequently and expressly forbidden. Number two, presumption in wearing or causing other priests to wear this kind of ephod, which was peculiar to the high priest. Three, transgression of a plain command of worshiping God ordinarily, but at one place and one altar, and withdrawing people from that place to his. Four, making a fearful schism or division among the people. Five, laying a stumbling block or an occasion of superstition or idolatry before the people whom he knew to be too prone to it. Now it's a bit of a question in my mind whether when Gideon made this, this ephod, I uh, seriously doubt that at least in the initial stages they were actually bowing down to it like the golden calves that, that Aaron made or later on that, that Jeroboam made for the, for the northern kingdom. My sense was that, that Gideon probably, probably made this, this ephod and was trying to function as a priest or at least have some others functioning as priests there in, in his town, in his city, and making some religious innovations. He might have still continued offering sacrifices to the Lord on that altar that he had been commanded to offer a one-time sacrifice on back in Judges chapter 6. And after all, who could blame him for not wanting to go to Shiloh, where the true tabernacle was for much of this period? Shiloh's over in the territory of Ephraim. The Ephraimites had already given him trouble at the beginning here of chapter 8. And you can understand why he might not be anxious to go back there. God had spoken to him and called him to sacrifice before. Why not just keep that going? Why not? Well, the answer is because God says you're supposed to worship where the tabernacle is. You're supposed to go to where the priests are, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And you're supposed to inquire of the Lord through them. As it turned out, we find that Israel played the harlot with the ephod and were drawn away from the true and prescribed worship of God while Gideon was alive. And then they moved on to play the harlot with the Baals after he was dead, as we find in verses 33 and 34. It seemed to be that this was, this was kind of the gateway, as it were, to worse things on down the line. The people went from the false worship of God while Gideon was alive to outright idolatrous worship after he was dead. Now, let's draw two lessons from this. First, that innovations in the worship of God are bad. Don't do it. We must worship God as he has commanded us in his word. And part of that means being content with the ordinary means of grace as the Lord has given them to us. The Lord has given us his word, which is sufficient for us, containing all things that we need for, for life and faith and godliness. And 
He has given us his church where we are to gather. He's given to his church the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we need to rest content with those things that God has given. We don't need new teachings. We don't need new ways of worship. The things God has given to us in his word are sufficient for us. And secondly, let's look at this sad decline of Gideon, this sad final note of his life. And just by it, be reminded of the importance of finishing well. How many people can we look at in Scripture who did not finish well? Now certainly, we can find many who were unbelievers who did not finish well. That's no surprise. But sometimes, we see that even believers did not finish well. This is a sad thing. Gideon, I trust, was was a saved man. We find him in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. He did much good for, for the people of Israel. But nevertheless, it was a sad finish. The Christian life is a race. And let's all be reminded that you don't win a race just by starting. You have to keep going. You have to finish. And so, brothers and sisters, let's finish well. Let's take to heart that exhortation of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, in other words, finished the race. Jesus finished well. And so let's throw aside the encumbrances and the sins. Let's look to Christ and let's keep running unto the end, trusting Christ for his grace for every step along the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for using weak and even sinful men like Gideon to deliver your people. And Lord, we ask that uh, we would be encouraged by the faithfulness that we see in Gideon and his trust in you. And Lord, we ask that we would be warned by the sad final note of his life. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, which is given to your people. And Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to finish well. Help us to, uh, to turn aside from sin. Help us to trust fully in you. Help us to be fully submissive to what you have commanded and what you have revealed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.